Well, good morning. I'm glad to be back with you and um, have had a long history with your pastor and just appreciate Matt and his ministry here. And it's been a journey, which sounds inappropriate given the name of your church, but it has been. I've been um, following from afar in Grand Rapids and I'm very thankful for what the Spirit of Christ is doing among you. I was watching the Bob Jackson video and I realized, boy, I wish I had known him. I think I would have loved him. What a godly, stand-up, wonderful man with a voice made for radio. But Bob had um, a lot of things going on in his life, but only one thing really matters now. Right? Did he know Jesus? And wasn't it great to hear how confident he was? He couldn't wait to see Jesus, and he couldn't even imagine what he would say when he met Jesus. Bob knew he was saved, and that's the most important thing that you need to know about Bob. In fact, that's the most important thing that you could ever ask yourself. How am I saved, and how do I know that I'm saved? So today I want to talk about assurance of salvation. This is kind of a dangerous thing, because there are two kinds of people when it comes to assurance. Those who should lack assurance, and those who should not. And I'm going to give medicine today. You know, if you give the wrong medicine to the wrong person, you can kill them. So there's, I'm going to try and cover both bases, and you have to know which one you are, to take the appropriate medicine, we'll trust the Holy Spirit to guide you in that effort. So first of all, what about those who should lack assurance of salvation? We just read from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said about these people, there are, he said, um, by their fruit you will know them, right? So Bob was planting in his garden. Uh, he says, uh, Jesus said, a, a good tree doesn't give bad fruit, and a bad tree doesn't give good fruit. Right? Bob plants tomatoes, you don't get broccoli. The good fruit doesn't give the bad. You, you, you get what you are. And so Jesus says in Matthew 7, you, there's these people who come in their, their false prophets, their wolves in sheep's clothing. And he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Now think about it. That's amazing. There are people who will say to Jesus someday, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We performed miracles in your name. I've never done any one of those things. These are spectacular feats of faith, it seems. Jesus will say to these people doing spectacular things, I never knew you. That should scare us, right? So what is this fruit that Jesus is looking for? Where he says, it's not these spectacular feats, but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is really concerned about what we call hypocrisy. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Matthew chapter 23. And we'll see what Jesus says about hypocrisy. Uh, you, the whole chapter is about this. I'll just read... Um, Matthew 23, verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the dish and cup, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus hated hypocrites, and so do you, and so do I. A hypocrite is someone who is a fake. They look good on the outside, but inside they're, they're just pretending. And these Pharisees who were the hypocrites, they were also very legalistic. And we all hate legalism, right? We think legalism is terrible. Legalism, though, it probably starts from a good motivation. Um, typically, you have a good principle, that, like flossing, right? Flossing is a pretty smart thing to do, right? Uh, by the way, my wife and I had this debate. Who here flosses before you brush your teeth? Sick people. Do you also do window cleaner on the outside of your car and then wash it? No, you should floss after you brush your teeth. That's the, the detailing comes after. But flossing is a good idea, right? We think that that's wise. But then these dentists make it a rule, right? People with perfect teeth and have nothing to do. It's their job to worry about. So they, you all have to floss. So we have now are people who... How many here floss every single night? Hypocrites, look at them. <laughs> you don't. You pretend because you know it's a good thing to do. So we have a, a good rule, a, a good principle. Good, yeah, it's a smart thing to do. You make it a rule, and that um, encourages hypocrisy. Uh, so Matt said I'm pastoring a Baptist church, and Baptists, <laughs> we're known for this. This is kind of our thing. Like, like Calvin Seminary has a joke. Why do you always take two Baptists with you when you go fishing? If you only take one, he'll drink all your beer. <laughs> so we have this idea that becomes a rule, and then Baptists, we fake it. We're pretending. So Jesus hates hypocrites, right? And so do you. And so do I. But let me just say a word. There's notes if you want to follow along. A word, a good word about hypocrisy first. There are many people, and you, maybe you are one of them, or you know in your family or friends, who will say, I don't go to church, or I don't go to that church, because that church is full of hypocrites. Right? When you hear that, okay, I'm not defending hypocrisy. We hate hypocrisy. It's disgusting. But one thing to tell someone like that is, of course there are hypocrites in church. Where else would you find them? Hypocrites are fakes, right? And hypocrites only fake something which is valuable. That's why they say um, hypocrisy is the, the compliment that vice pays to virtue. Right? Here's something you have never heard in your whole life. Is that guy, was he molesting that kid? No, he was just pretending. Did, did Sally... It really embezzled that money? No, she just pretended that she did. No one ever pretends to be a racist or a pompous windbag or something which is negative, right? You only pretend to be something which is valuable. So I spent 26 years in the academy, and there's a lot of people there who try to pretend like they're smarter than they are. So they say things like, terminate the aperture, when they could have just said, shut the window. <laughs> or they say things like, we need to explicate the narrative arc. When they mean, tell the story. 
So if in a year, if Matt starts talking about exculpating narrative art, just slap him. Say, Matt, just tell the story. Right? The academy can do this to you, but it's not just like the... It's, at, like, in Traverse City, you ever see the guy on the, the Harley with the leather jacket and the beard and the, the tattoo, the barbed wire tattoo? He's trying to pretend like he's tough. He might be as soft as wet Kleenex, but he wants to pretend he's something really... He's a man. Or You've been on Facebook, right? The whole thing is full of hypocrisy. Like... <laughs> The family is smiling at having a great week in that Great Love Lodge. And you know that just before that picture was taken, little Jimmy's biting Susie. And someone else is picking his nose. And they're shouting, come on, just for the picture. And they take the picture, and it looks like they're having a great time. So if you have ever seen a hip- hypocrite in church, if you've ever been offended by a hypocrite in church, you should be offended by the hypocrites in church. Jesus was. But think about it. Don't let the fakes keep you from the real thing. If you see a fake, that's a sign. That's a tell. That should remind you, hey, something here is precious. I'm in the neighborhood of something really valuable. So valuable, people are willing to pretend. Don't let the posers keep you from Jesus. Slip past them and find the real thing, like Bob Jackson did. Second thing, for those of us who have or are following Christ, you need to know hypocrisy is the one temptation that only increases with age. Right? So Bob said he came to Christ, what, mid-50s after a hard divorce? Let's say he chose to follow Christ and did so for a week and then realized, nope, this isn't for me. He goes back to his former life. Okay, that was, you tried it. If Bob follows Christ for a few months and then goes back, well, that was an interesting phase. But once Bob followed Christ for five years, now he's invested. Ten years, even more. Some of you have been following Christ for 50 years. For 80 years. If the first line in your obituary is going to read, she went home to be with her faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You need to know, hypocrisy is your special temptation. Because you're invested. You're identified with Jesus. When people think about you, they think about how you follow Christ. So when your love for Christ cools, you're going to be tempted to pretend. Because it's a part of who you are. It's worse for me. It's worse for Matt. You pay Matt to love Jesus. <laughs> I have two jobs, both of which, which pay me to love Jesus. If I decide I don't love Jesus anymore, I'm not qualified for anything else. What else? I, gotta, I need a job. I've got to provide for my family. Right? So don't look at me like you're, don't be so suspicious. <laughs> but just know that this is, there's a reason why it's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who were so identified with religion, they were the hypocrites. So we hate hypocrisy, right? Jesus did. You do. I do. But just know, it's the one temptation which will never go away. The more you love Jesus, the more you identify with Jesus, the more you'll be tempted to fake it when it's no longer there. So how do we know if we're legit? How do we know if we're real? How do we know if our faith is 
if we're not faking it? Well, for help, here in your notes is something from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was America's greatest theologian. More importantly, though, his grandson was Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton from the musical. So that's his claim to fame. But Edwards, um, he was pastoring in the First Great Awakening. And when the first, that was the first revival in America. When it ended, he wrote this little book called The Nature of Religious Affections. And he looked back like a scientist on all of the things he saw with the revival. And how do you know if someone's emotion, if someone's life changed, how can you tell if it's real or if it's just temporary or a fake? Well, in your notes, there is a paragraph there that says, signs that prove nothing. So some people have very great emotions. They affect the body. They come with fluency and fervor, lots of words. They come with scripture attached. They, they have an appearance of love. They have zeal and duty. They have moving testimonies. He said none of these things are, they prove it because hypocrites like to talk. Um, Satan can use scripture. So how do you know if your heart, if your love for Jesus, how do you know if it's real? Well, at the end, here's the key paragraph. He says, Passing affections easily produce words, and words are cheap, and godliness is more easily feigned in words than in actions. Christian practice is a costly, laborious thing. The self-denial that's required of Christians and the narrowness of the way that leads to life does not consist in words, but in practice. Here's the key line. Hypocrites may much more easily be, be brought to talk like saints than to act like saints. Talk is cheap. Hypocrites want maximum press for minimum effort. Like when I was in college lifting weights, I lifted just enough weights so I looked like I was strong. I didn't care if I was strong. I just wanted to look like I was built, right? Have a better chance of dating. You, you, you want maximum press for minimum effort. Hypocrites don't pay a price. That's why they're hypocrites. If you want to know if your faith, if your love for Jesus is true, if it's real, if it's strong, ask yourself this. When's the last time I paid a price for following Jesus? Paying a price is something a, a fake will never do. One example, um, and Dave, Dave Lamb, you remember Jim Greer, right? Your mentor too. So were you at Jim Greer's funeral, uh, what, 10, 12 years ago? I think it was like a February winter night, um, like 7 o'clock, and I'm leaving Grand Rapids for Hudsonville for the funeral, and I get into a traffic jam, and just my car's not moving. It's stop and go. Turn on the radio. It looks like it's all the way to Jenison. I thought, I'm going to be really late now. Maybe not even make the funeral. So maybe I should just go home. It was right winter time, and it was cold, and it was dark, and my family's at home, and it's warm. I, should, I, should, I tried. I should just go home. Then I thought, No. This was a very important man in my life. He cared about me. I loved him. He helped shape me theologically. I may not get there on time. I may miss the whole thing. But I'm going to stay in this 196, on this interstate, because that's the way I can show that I love him, that I cared. So think about when you have your devotions when you read your Bible and pray. The reason you do that is to hear from God, right? And to, to um, hear Jesus speak to you. 
But there are mornings when you read the Bible and there's nothing. Like you got nothing out of that. And you pray and it feels like it's just, you're, you're talking into the air and no one's listening. No one even sees you up there. Well, that's not why you do it. That's, that's not good. That's bad, right? But think about it. You've just been given a golden opportunity. Because now, if you wake up tomorrow and do the same thing over again, you're telling Jesus in unmistakable terms, I'm in this for you. I'm doing this for you, not for what I get out of it. You're willing to pay a price for following Christ. One other example, and I want to be careful here, and Matt doesn't know I'm going to say this, and this comes out of pastoring now for two and a half years, but um, I've noticed, so growing up Baptist, right, we were very legalistic, and we never said it, but we kind of knew that there were three tiers of Christians. There were the committed Christians who came Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And you were the A-team. There were other Christians who would only come Sunday morning, Sunday night, and um, you were, we liked you, but we prayed for you, that you would really give your heart to Christ. And then there were those who only came on Sunday mornings, and we could let you play softball, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> right? So we, we had three tiers. Now, praise God, we are past that. But, the pendulum's always going, and now something I've noticed, even committed, and it doesn't help on a weekend like this. And by the way, I'm not in my church, so stop judging me. Um, <laughs> bunch of hypocrites, legalists. Um, but attending church has become more of a lifestyle choice. Right? If we can fit it in, we'll be there. But it's not, it feels more optional than it used to be. People are not... Even just showing up and gathering isn't as important as it used to be for God's people. So when my daughter was younger, she was in gymnastics, and we liked it. it was a good thing. But we just said, she's in middle school. We're not, we're not skipping. Now again, I'm not saying you cannot skip church for some. So we don't be legalistic, right? So please hear me. I'm not saying you can never miss church, right? But with our daughter, we said, love gymnastics, but... This is a, a teaching moment, too. We will never miss a morning church service for a gymnastics meet. And we were the freaks. Right? Even other Christians thought, whoa, that's really too far. But you know what? I wanted my daughter to do gymnastics, but I needed her to love Jesus. And I needed her to value the church. And I wanted, I wanted to have that chance to show her. When push comes to shove, we value worship in the church. So again, please hear me. I'm not trying to heap guilt on you or shame or saying you can never miss but just notice how we've gone to the other extreme I think in, in our, our circles or even the leaders of our church will skip for reasons that we never would have considered even gathering as a church is a chance to pay a price so someone who should lack assurance is someone who when you look at them you just don't see any fruit. You don't see any evidence. They don't talk any different. They don't. They watch the same same shows on Netflix as everyone else. They don't. They don't have a. You don't see the affections. You don't see a heart for God. Like only God's the judge, right? But looking at you know people like this. Looking at you, if I had to bet if you're born again or not, I wouldn't bet on you. I just don't see the fruit. So how do you know, if you're in that category, what should you look for? Jesus says fruit, and Edwards adds fruit that costs you something. So ask yourself this. 
Do I pray better in public than in private? Do I read the Bible for myself or only when I'm preparing a lesson? What would I stop doing if I knew that everyone in this room would find out about it? What would I start doing if I knew everyone in this room would find out about it? When given a chance to pay a price for following Christ, gladly pay it and then keep the receipt. That's your proof that you're not a fake. You're the real thing. Okay, that's the first group. The other group is probably under the chairs right now. Someone who should not lack assurance, but you do because you're an overly sensitive soul. And all that you heard was like, oh my goodness, they're just piling on. I know, I know. I know I should have fruit. And my fruit, I see all the flaws. I see all the blemishes. My fruit's not good enough. That, that's... How can, I, how can someone like me ever have assurance? I know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but how do I know that he is the Savior of me? So if this is you, if you're overly sensitive and you recognize your fruit's never enough, I want to tell you briefly about John Bunyan. Not Paul Bunyan, that's the guy with the blue locks. John Bunyan was the, um, probably the first Baptist hero. He was born in 1628, died in 88 he was in prison for his, um, so in England in the 17th century at the established state church and you had the nonconformist church and Bunyan was part of the nonconformist church. And so for 12 years he was in prison where he wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which, which outside of the King James Bible is the best-selling English book of all time. Uh, 200 languages translated. So Bunyan is, he, he's, how many here have read Pilgrim's Progress? Right? It's a classic. Remember when, when Christian starts out for the celestial city, he falls right away into this slow of despond? Well, we learn more about that slow of despond from another book Bunyan wrote, his own autobiography, spiritual autobiography, called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. In that book, he says this. He talks about a, a, a miry bog, which are sinful thoughts which often, quote, sink me into very deep despair. For I concluded that such things could not possibly be found amongst them that loved God. So Bunyan had a very overly sensitive conscience. And he talks about that in Grace Abounding. He said, for one year, for a whole year, I had this thought that kept entering. He was almost like OCD. This thought that kept entering his head. Sell Christ. Sell Christ. Sell Christ. And for a whole year, he fought it. No, I won't do it. Not for this world. Not for an infinite number of worlds. I'll never sell Jesus. And then one morning, he's waking up kind of sleepily, and he, that thought says, sell Christ. He says, okay, he can go if he wants. Oh, no, what have I done? I just sold Jesus. There's no hope for me because he's the Savior. I just sold my only hope of salvation. Now what will become of me? It's over for me. If that's you, by the way, like Bunyan thought, I've just committed the unpardonable sin. How can I be pardoned if I sold the one who can pardon me? Just know that no one in this room can commit the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is the people who saw Jesus performing miracles in the power of the Spirit and knew it was the Spirit and denied it, just flat denied it. No one here is in that condition. If you ever have a doubt that you've done something that Jesus will not or cannot pardon, hear Jesus' words in John 6.37. Jesus says, 
Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's Jesus. So don't ever think you have done something that Jesus cannot pardon. If you do think you're, that your sin is too great for Jesus, then I have some pretty bad news for you. You're worse than you think. Think with me. If you think you have, no, I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you're planning to do. I don't know the thoughts in your head. But if you think you've done something or have thought something or have said something that is too great for Jesus to forgive, then whatever your list of sins are, at the very top of that list, you better add the sin of pride. Really, you, little old you from Traverse City, you have done something that is stronger than Jesus. You have done something, you have thought something, you have said something, even he can't forgive? Why are you more impressed with you than with him? He's God. He died for big sins, gross sins, shameful sins, disgusting sins, my sins, your sins. He didn't die for just small potatoes. In fact, he wasn't just not surprised by your sin. He was counting on it. That's why he died. So get over yourself already. You're just not that special. Jesus is stronger than you and me. God's yes to you is stronger than our squeaky pity no to him. When he roars yes in Christ, he overwhelms all of our, all of our sin. All we need then, here's the good news, and you know this, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. We receive Christ through faith which raises this important question. What if my faith isn't strong enough? Have you ever wondered that? Okay, so Jesus, he's, he's bigger than my sin. Okay, I just have to put my faith in him. But my, my faith is weak too. How do I know if my faith is enough to bring Christ into my heart and forgive all my sins? Well, I've got really great news for you. In John chapter 3, Jesus compared himself to this Old Testament story about a snake. You know John 3.16, God loves the world. Right before that, Jesus says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have everlasting life in him. Jesus compares himself to that snake. Now, if you look at Numbers chapter 21, in that story about the snake, so the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and they're grumbling and planning, because that's what they do. That's why the book is called Numbers, because Moses is always counting to ten. And then, that's not true. But, um, so there's, the, there's lights are added again. They're complaining. They're, 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 we, we hate this food. The manna's terrible. And then God sends snakes, and they bite them. And now these lights are dying. So God says this. Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. So I'm reading from Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, if you look at your notes, I have something really cool to show you. This is one of those few times where knowing Hebrew, like Dave Lamb does and Matt Heron and myself, this is where it really pays off. So I'm reading this, looking at this in Hebrew, and in verse 8, there's a, the word for look is the Hebrew word ra'ah, and in verse 9, there's a different Hebrew word for look. It's called navat. 
I thought, wow, this is cool. I only know this because I can read Hebrew. There's two different words here for, for the same, for look. This has to mean something. And so I looked up the lexicon, which is really a stuffy word for dictionary. And here's what I found. Ra'ah, the word means see. And the lexicon says, this calls for no special comment. It's a common word for seeing with the eyes. I looked up the word navat, and it says, this word is used 69 times in the Old Testament, often parallel with ra'ah. They mean the same thing. The point is, learning Hebrew makes no difference at all. <laughs> right? But this is good for you. When you read your NIV, your ESV, your King James, right? You have, we have an embarrassing good translations. Right? What's the Hebrew word in the book of Jonah? You know what the Hebrew word for great fish? You know what it means in Hebrew? Great fish. Right? When you read your English Bible, you are reading the Word of God. And it's, it's there. So learning Hebrew, it doesn't make a difference. It's the same. It's look at the snake, see the snake. But this is why this is important for us. To be healed by the snake, all you had to do was look at the snake. All you had to do was see the snake. These words are not special. They just mean look. They just mean see. They don't mean look with special faith. Right? These Israelites who were bitten by the snake, some of them could have squinted and the snake could have been blurry. They had less than 20-20 vision. Didn't matter. You see that blurry snake? Healed. Others could have looked in a selfish way, pushing older people out of the way to get a better look. It didn't matter. You saw it, you're healed. Some could have looked with doubt, like, is this really going to work? It doesn't matter. If you saw it, you were healed. Isn't that great? You don't need special powerful faith to be healed. All you need is to look at the snake, right? This is the important thing about faith, and I'm sure you know this, but the important thing about faith is not how strongly you believe it, but it's what you believe in, right? So this is happening again. Um, There's a a lion nation, I guess, because they finished the season pretty well. Right? And you ever see these Lions game? There's the eight-year-old boy with a, with a sign. We believe! You poor kid. <laughs> like, you may really believe, but it's the Lions. And some of you, now if you're 50 or older, you know not to fall. But if you're in the 40s, you're like, wow, this is the year. <laughs> Whatever. Right? It doesn't matter. Think about this. You know the, you've been to the Grand Canyon? You know that uh, Outlook thing, that transparent, they built that like a semicircle, transparent glass, or hopefully it's not glass, something stronger. But you can look right down the canyon. Anybody ever been out there and see it? You've seen a picture of it? Okay, so imagine someone on walking, and they're just really calm, like this is built, and they're just really having a, and they're jumping up and down and testing it. Great. And someone else is like, uh, shaking, and they're grabbing on, and they're, oh, they can't wait. They're on their knees crawling, and they're afraid. Which one is held by that thing? Both. Or you've been to Chicago and seen the, the Hancock Tower and they have that new thing where the thing comes out. Anyone, have, anyone done that? Where you get in there and it, it goes over the city and you see some people that are over there and they're pounding on it and they're like, ah, this is great. Others are their back end sticking out because they're really afraid of, they don't want to, you've seen that? Both, which one is held? Both. Some of you have really robust, no doubt about it, confident faith in Jesus. Others of you You've been beaten down. Life has got you. 
things that you have done or things that have been done to you, you have doubts. Your world feels really dark. You're not sure. But like Peter said to Jesus, where else can I go? I have nowhere else to turn. It's got to be you. And so you have doubts, but you, but you look. Which one of these is healed by Jesus? Talk to me. Which one of these is healed by Jesus? Both. It doesn't matter if you have doubts. It doesn't matter if you're not sure. It doesn't matter if your motives aren't pure. Just look and you are healed. That's what Jesus said. So there's this end of your notes here, this quote from Zachary Ursinus, who sounds like he has a nasal condition. Um, Ursinus, we think, is one who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, the best catechism ever. And he says this about faith. Though our faith is weak and imperfect, yet it is nevertheless true and unfeigned. So here's the thing. Jesus matters more than the, your faith in him. Right? The object of your faith matters. When, faith is like horseradish. A little bit goes a long way. It, your faith doesn't have to be robust or muscular, right? We don't have, we talk about this man, this man or woman, they are, they are powerful people of faith. They have great faith. They can move God, right? Praise God for that. Great. But your faith doesn't have to be like that at all. You just have to have a little bit. It's not how much faith you have. It's where you put it. And so Ursinus says, yeah, my faith in Christ, my faith in Christ forgives all of my sin. Well, what about the sin in my faith? My faith isn't pure either. Well, as long as I look to Christ, Christ forgives not only my sin, but also the sin in my faith. He matters far more than how much you believe in him. Just look, and you can have assurance of salvation. Assurance doesn't come by how, how strongly we believe, but how strong Jesus is. That's why Hebrews chapter 12, we're told, fix your eyes where? On Jesus. Two big benefits of fixing your eyes on Jesus. If I'm looking to Jesus, I'm not looking at myself. If I look at myself, only one of two things will happen, both are bad. Either get overconfident and proud, because look at me, I'm killing it now, or I'm getting really discouraged, because I see how I messed up, I just, I keep doing that. Don't, why am I looking at myself? Look at Jesus. Assurance of salvation comes the same way salvation comes, through Christ. So when I look to Christ, I get my eyes off myself, and I look to the only one through whom salvation and assurance come. So I love what Martin Luther said. He said the devil would often come and remind him about all of his sins, or some of them. And Luther would say, I promptly agreed with the devil, and said, thank you for telling me about my sins. And by the way, you forgot a couple. I'm way worse than what you just told me. But thank you for telling me about my sin because that gives me an excuse to celebrate Jesus. All my sin, all my guilt, all my shame, that's why Jesus. So, if it's okay with you, I'm going to take a moment and just celebrate Jesus. And Luther says, if you do this, every time the devil comes and Remind you of your regret and all the things you love to have back. If you use that as a trigger to celebrate Jesus, Luther says, you slit the devil's throat 
with his own sword. And pretty soon, he'll just leave you alone. So how can you know, like Bob Jackson, that you know Jesus? Well, start, like Jesus said, looking at your fruit. Does your fruit cost you something? That's a really good sign. But ultimately, it's going to come down to, where's your faith? Are you looking at yourself and even the quality of your fruit for assurance? Not ultimately. Ultimately, it's got to come to Jesus. Just look. And you can be born again and saved. You can know that you are. Father, we thank you for the gospel, which is Jesus. He is the good news. We don't deserve it. We have no claim on this, but you kindly, graciously have sent Jesus to us. He became the snake. And through his death, he turned evil back on itself, and now the snake is eating its own tail. And he rose again in triumph. He's now at the Father's right hand, and today we remember he sent the Spirit, who's now in this very room as we gather, working through his word, and now through the bread and the cup. So we praise you that you did not leave us to what we deserve, but you gave us Jesus so we can be rescued from hell and damnation and to an everlasting life on this earth with Bob Jackson when your son returns. Thank you for how good you are to us. Amen. Thank you much.